Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7. If you don't have a copy with you, it is in the back of your Psalter hymnals. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7. Please pray with me one more time. The blessing of God upon this preaching. Heavenly Father, we once again come before Thee and ask, Lord, that Thou would help us and guide us through this preaching. Thou would help me as Thy ambassador, Thy minister, to preach Thy word, Thy truth. Lord, that we would use the Heidelberg Catechism merely as a starting point, as a place from which we can jump, not a place which we are bound to, O Lord. For thy word alone should govern us. Help us to see that and to believe that, O God. Lord, we confess our sins and we confess our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who forgives us of our sins in his blood, his atonement, his redemption, and gives to us the Holy Spirit. And Lord, it is especially now, O Holy Spirit, that we rely upon thee, in the proclamation and hearing of preaching. Lord, send us not on a fool's errand, but help us, O God, to profit herefrom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Heidelberg, Lord's Day 7, which will look at questions 20 through 23. In our day, dear congregation, we are going through a downgrade, and we have been since the 1800s, early 1800s, really. Charles Spurgeon fought vehemently against the downgrade in his day, and it continues on to our day. Everything from Bible translations all the way to critical race theory. The gospel has been compromised. Church order has been compromised. The Christian life has been compromised from pulpits and practice all around us. Being polemic is an aspect of preaching. It should not be the entirety of preaching ever. If all we get up here and do is cast down this is wrong, that is wrong, then we are wrong. But we must be aware of what is happening around us so that we know the true answer that it is found in Jesus Christ and the scriptures. And anything in history, as we go through the Heidelberg or anything else, as insofar as it aligns with Scripture, we should take it. Insofar as it goes beyond Scripture, it adds to the Word of God. It takes away from the Word of God. It goes beyond what the Scripture says. We should be quick to reject it. We should be quick to reject it. Part of the downgrade is the downgrade in doctrine, obviously. Critical race theory has its roots in higher criticism. Critical race theory, if you don't know what that is, it's taking the evangelical churches by storm. It is the teaching that certain races are by nature underprivileged or privileged and must then have Christianity adapted for them. It is a heresy. But its roots are not new. The acceptance also in the critical race theory is different forms of uh, new wave feminism different waves of homosexuality being accepted in the church, that it's okay to have homosexual tendencies, but it's not okay to have homosexual practice. 
And before long, it will be like the PCUSA, where homosexual practice is also okay. And all of this can be traced back through time. Roughly the 1800s. Roughly in the 1800s. In higher criticism. In higher criticism. Higher criticism teaches that we should have a critical eye towards the Bible. Moses didn't really write the Old Testament. Moses adapted things. Or, or there was multiple authors to the Pentateuch. Even though the church and Jesus points back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and says, Moses wrote those. Amen. <clears throat> now we should question Jesus. Well, Jesus was just going along with the rabbinical understanding of that time. We can't, we can't blame Jesus. He just didn't know any better. We need to reject that. The scriptures don't give room for that. They don't give license for that. It's like what we've been talking about in Jonah, where some people reject that he literally was swallowed and all that. All this stuff goes into every aspect of doctrine. One aspect that comes along. As soon as you see churches going and doing the being light on homosexuality, being light on gender issues, being light on race, and trying to bring all of that critical theory and thinking in, with it, you also see a low view of the scriptures. Always. And also, it almost always leads to monotheism in the sense of Unitarianism. The deity of Christ through eternal subordination of the Son and, and all sorts of other things like that always end up leading towards Unitarianism. Casting down the deity of Christ. And also, universalism. If you read, even before higher criticism, the Enlightenment, what the Enlightenment did to European Christian thinkers is still playing out today. You look at Friedrich Schleiermacher's Christliche Glaube, the Christian faith. He completely redid from an existential understanding what Christianity is. And that's still playing out. Bart is not dead. He still speaks. Karl Barth was one of the most influential theologians of the 1900s. And his theories, his ideas are still permeating everything. That's where James Cone, the guy who started critical race theory, got his ideas. was Karl Barth. I want to tie this all back into universalism. The idea that there's one God and you take away all distinctives. Everyone can just share in that. Muslims worship the same God as us. Jews worship the same God as us. Hindus worship the same God as us. You start boiling it down, glossing it over, and making it into one thing, it's no longer Christianity. And with that comes then everybody's saved. Everybody's saved. And this is not new. Just because it has a, a, large, resurgence, a large resurgence in the 1800s that's still going on today doesn't mean it's new. The early church father, Origen, taught apocatastasis. What apocatastasis means is the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things, including universalism. He even said that Satan would be redeemed by Christ's sacrifice. Satan and the devils. So all of this always leads to universalism. You see the things that are happening with Beth Moore right now, the SBC? Give it uh, just a little bit of time. You will see universalism being holistically accepted by the SBC. Happened to the PCUSA. Happened to the PCUSA. Do we, do we know of a stronger voice for Orthodox Christianity in the PCUSA than Benjamin Breckenfield Warfield? I don't think so. Yet, it was all to no avail in his writings and his fighting against it. The PCUSA still went that way. Warfield tried and he failed, 
Because if you read Warfield's writings, he also accepted many critical theories. We need not have a critical mind when we come to the scriptures, but a believing mind. It's our time, as Pastor Taylor often says, to sit down and listen and be taught when we come to the scriptures. Not go, well, does it mean this or that? Is this really what Jesus was trying to say? Is this really what happened? No. Sit down, listen, God is speaking. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we must not have a critical eye. Universalism is still a big issue. Rob Bell, even though he got ushered away, we all said goodbye to Rob Bell a few years ago with his book Love Wins. He's still influential. And people are following suit with him. And this is exactly, this topic of universalism is, universalism is what the Heidelberg Catechism addresses in Lord's Day 7. So let's read questions 20 through 23, Lord's Day 7. Question 20. Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved in Christ? Answer, no. Only those who are engrafted into him, into Christ, and receive all his benefits by a true faith. Question 21. What is true faith? Answer. True faith is not only a certain knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence, which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Question 22. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? Answer, all things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. What are those Catholic undoubted articles? Question 23, what are these articles? Answer, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And for a few Lord's Days, quite a few, they'll be expounding the Apostles' Creed that was just quoted there. Let's look at three points this evening in this section. Number one, who will be saved? That's the first point we'll look at. Number two, how they shall be saved. Number three, what they must believe to be saved. So first, who will be saved? In question 20 and the answer, address this. Are all men then saved? Answer, no. Only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by true faith. Why are not all men saved? It's a good question. And I see lots of universalists that I interact with or people that, well, I don't necessarily teach universalism, but I don't not teach it. I don't reject it. I have conversations with these people a lot, especially when I was engaging with a lot of BART scholars. Are not all, why, why can't all men be saved? And the, the logic goes like this. If all men are fallen with Adam, like Romans 5.12 tells us, we've looked at that extensively, then why are not all men saved in the second Adam? Jesus Christ. If they've all fallen in the first Adam, 
Why are they not all redeemed in the second Adam, Jesus Christ? We demonstrated this last week that the infinite merits of Christ are inexhaustible and can cover an infinite amount of sins. So if his merits, who he is in his person, can cover an infinite amount of sins, why can they not save all sinners? Why are not all sinners saved then? Why are his merits not applied to all? If all fell in Adam and the second Adam has infinite merits, why are they not applied to all of Adam's seed? The scriptures place all men in sin under Adam, who is our federal head by nature and by birth. He is our federal head by nature and by birth, by generation, as some of the old divines put it. And the scriptures not only say that all men are in sin under Adam, but they also gloriously set forth for us the atonement of Jesus Christ for sinners. But the benefits of this atonement are not applied to all. Are not applied to all. So how can this be? Especially in light of Romans 5.12, which says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And it goes on later in the chapter to say that just as all died in Adam, so all live in Christ. All. But we know that not all men can be saved. Not all men can be saved. The Bible specifically tells us that. The Bible excludes certain men, certain people, from partaking in the merits of Christ's redemption. Namely, the unregenerate. The unregenerate cannot be saved. Bardians and a lot of the liberals now, and this kind of teaching that's coming in through the downgrade, teaches that Christ's love is so great that God's love will win in the end. That's love wins. God's love will end up covering even those who don't know they are Christ will be Christ's and are Christ's, even though they don't profess Christ. And when they get to, to the, the throne room, they will be justified because they were Jesus Christ all along. Even though they never believed in him, they were never regenerate. So the unregenerate cannot be saved. They shall not be saved. Our Lord Jesus said as much in John chapter 3. When he was speaking to Nicodemus, he said, Except a man be born again regenerate, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So already right there, we have one group of people that cannot be saved. So if all have sinned, these are part of that group that all have sinned in Adam, and now they're cut off. The unregenerate shall not be saved. Also, the unrepentant shall not be saved. As the Lord said to the Jews when they questioned him about the tower in Siloam or the blood being mixed in the sacrificial blood by Pilate, he said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So, unregenerate, unrepentant. There's no hope for them to be saved. They shall not and cannot be saved. And the unregenerate and the unrepentant are caught up in this next one, which is the unbelieving. The unbelieving shall not be saved. What does it mean to be unregenerate and unrepentant other than to be unbelieving? Other than to be unbelieving. And our our catechism questions today clearly stated that. That it is faith. That's the key root issue here, is faith. Look at that in a minute. So the unbelieving shall not be saved. Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Mark, after he was resurrected, he that believeth not shall be damned. So we already have three large groups of people here. The unregenerate cannot be saved. The unrepentant cannot be saved, and the unbelieving cannot be saved. Thus we see, even in just a brief overview, that the scriptures plainly teach that not 
all men shall be saved. Not all of Adam's children shall be saved. But only a certain group of men. Now I'm sticking close to my notes here because there's some very specific wording we want to work with. So try to track with me. The argument goes like this from the other side. People will say, oh, whether you're arguing for just universal redemption, Jesus died for everyone's sins, or whether you're talking about Jesus died for everyone's sins, and therefore all will be saved, whether they believe or not. The argument goes like this, that because all have fallen in the first Adam, it must then follow that all shall be redeemed in the second Adam. Because all have fallen in the first Adam, it then follows that all shall be redeemed in the second Adam. And this argument falls apart when we acknowledge the difference. We acknowledge the difference in the representations of the first and second Adams. There's a difference there. They represent their people in a different way. The representation of all men in Adam is on the basis of our natural descent from him. He represents us because he is our father, according to the flesh. For he is the first man, the father of the entire human race, right? We are his children. We are all in the loins of Adam, as it were. So he is our representative by way of natural generation. Our father, we come from his loins. However, between us and the second Adam, namely Jesus Christ, there is no such natural or necessary connection. There is no such natural or necessary connection. As he is not our natural father by generation or by birth. We're not in the loins of Christ. It is true that by his humanity, he is our elder brother and our kinsman, but he is not our parent. The second Adam is his people's representative of his own free choice, of his own free choice, according to the will of the triune God and redemption. The second Adam's people accept him as their representative of their own free choice, according to that same divine will. According to that same divine will. So the the people who are represented in the second Adam in Jesus Christ, he represents them by his own free choice. Not because they naturally generate from his loins and they're his descendants. He represents them of his own free choice according to the will of the triune God in redemption. And we accept him. Those who believe upon him, those who are represented by Jesus Christ, the second Adam, accept him of their own free choice, according to that same divine will, the decree of God. The relation, therefore, between the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and us, his people, is not original, but appointed. It's not original, but appointed. It's not necessary, but gracious. Not natural, but spiritual. Let me just some classical theological terms there. I'll explain them a little bit here for us. Our relation to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is not original but appointed. Meaning, it doesn't come from nature like it does with Adam. Adam's our father, our representative, whether we like it or not. He's our federal head because we come from him. We are his descendants. Not so with Jesus. It's appointed. He was appointed to be the savior of his people. Like in the Gospel of Luke or Gospel of Matthew. You shall name him Jesus. His name shall be Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He was appointed as a savior, as a representative for his people. It's not necessary, but gracious. It means there's no necessity that he has to be representative. 
It's a gracious choice. It's a free, gracious, and merciful choice on behalf of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. It's not natural, but spiritual. It's not of the flesh, but it's of the spirit. We are represented by the first Adam by original and natural birth. But we are only represented in the second Adam through appointment, reception, and choice according to the divine will. That's important to understand. A lot of people don't understand original sin, and it's kind of a complex thing. Once you kind of work out that there's a distinction here between Jesus being the representative in the second Adam and Adam being the first Adam, once you understand that the difference is there, it kind of falls into place. If we do not make this necessary difference, then we must conclude that all who fell in Adam must be redeemed in Christ. And then you have universalism. Whether that's universal redemption as the Arminian teaches or universalism as the heretics teach. So what are we to make of the all passages in the Bible? There are, they are there. Do we just gloss them over and, oh, that's not what it means. What do we do? Well, we're not going to look at all of them tonight. But each of these passages can be resolved by giving special attention to the context. And that's a great tool in studying the Bible on your own anyway. So many verses, when they're pulled out of context, they're understood in our culture, and our Christian culture, incorrectly because they're always pulled out of context and taught that way and understood that way. But when you put them back in their context and you read it in their context, you see that that's not what it means. You thought it was, but it actually doesn't mean that. Like Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't, that's not referring to football or basketball, or even doing well at your job. That's referring to Paul saying, I suffer affliction. Whether I'm afflicted or whether I'm doing well and things are going good for me, either way I can do all these things through Christ who gives me strength. So each of these passages, the all passages, just put them back in their context, read the greater context, and we'll see what's going on there. They can be resolved that way, most of them. And by keeping in mind that since all men are not saved which we know is true from scriptures, then all men cannot have Christ's redemptive work applied to them in any way because Christ's redemption is powerful. What he did actually mattered on the cross. It wasn't hypothetical. He actually did something. He actually saved his people. In the context of Romans 5, which we just looked at, Paul can only be referring to two things by all. Paul is either speaking of all who are in Adam And we just stated that this cannot be the case. Or, Paul is referring to all who are in Christ. All who are the members of his church. All who are members of his body, which is his fullness. It is helpful also to remember that in the former dispensation, the former dispensation, salvation was confined to the Jewish nation, primarily. A stray Gentile could come in and become part of the people of God. But it was the people of God, Israel, was called his son. Salvation was confined to the Jewish nation primarily. Whereas now, in the New Testament dispensation of the covenant of grace, it is preached to all people. And we are proclaimed to, we are told and commanded to proclaim it to all people. Go into all nations and proclaim the gospel to all creation. Thus, when the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.2, 2, 
And he is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That sounds like our argument just fell apart. That therefore, everyone will be saved, whether they know Jesus or not. That's what that sounds like. But we must take it not to mean that, but rather that it's not the sins only of the Jews anymore, but also of all other nations as well who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Since our Lord stated, he that believeth not shall be damned. He that believeth not, whether Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter, will be damned. The Apostle Paul also says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to all that believeth, you could change it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Those who are engrafted in Christ are Catechism goes on to say, are the ones that shall be saved. So who is it that's saved? Well, it's not everyone. It's those who are engrafted that shall be saved. We, we must be engrafted into Christ if we are to have any hope of salvation. Only those who are engrafted from the rotten tree that was Adam and engrafted, cut off from that, and engrafted into the tree of life, which is Jesus Christ, will be saved. And that's it. We must be put into a living branch, taken off the dead branch and put into a living branch if we are to have salvation. Paul uses this analogy in Romans 11. And our Lord speaks in like manner in John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. We must be engrafted into the vine who is Jesus Christ. He is the true vine. And we are the branches. Those who are engrafted, the catechism then goes on to say, also receive all his benefits. All his benefits. You could preach an entire series of sermons on that. In salvation, while we are engrafted, while we are brought into Jesus Christ's body, his church, and made partakers with him, the sinner is then joined to Christ by the free grace of God. The sinner derives spiritual life from Christ. Christ working good in and through us as believers. Christ works in and through us his good works that he wishes to accomplish. We'd love to go deeper on that. We're going to have to move forward. So who are these people? Who can have faith? It's namely those who, who can be saved. It's namely those who have a true faith. And this brings us to our next point. Second, how will they be saved? So who will be saved? Only those who are engrafted in Christ. How will they be saved? Question 21 states this. What is true faith? Answer. True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others but to me also remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. So only those that have true faith shall be saved. Only those. And why does it have to be faith? Why does it have to be faith? So that it is not of man. So that there is no boast in our parts, in our minds. We know that it is all of God. Christ is the beginning, the maintaining, and the end of our salvation. It's Christ, Christ, Christ. And the only way it can be that is by faith. Faith, faith. Those who received Christ... 
and not only intellectually assented to the truth of the gospel shall be saved. It's not enough to simply go, yeah, that sounds pretty good. That's a good argument. I guess I'll, I guess I'll start believing that and, and agree that that is true. That's one of the hard things to deal with when you're doing evangelism. You're doing, you run into apologetic issues where people, what about this? What about that? Age of the earth. What about how the, the, the Egyptian pyramids are built by aliens? What do I do with these things? Geo rock layers and all these things get brought up. And you can work through all those things with friends and family and neighbors and people that you're witnessing to and, and evangelizing to. But ultimately it must come down to a supernatural work of God. And that's it. If they are to be saved, it has to be a supernatural work of God. It's a reception, a receiving of Christ, not merely an assenting to the truth. John 1, if you'd flip there, if you want. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. We're talking about the, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. We now see this, this word that came down. Start in verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. So there's a receiving there. There's a supernatural work of God that takes place. That takes place. And it has to be this. It has to be this. We must receive Christ. That's a true (laughs) resting upon him. Not merely, this is the best option. Out of all the religious options, I choose this one because it makes the most sense. That's not what this verse is telling us. That's not what salvation is. It is a receiving of him. He came unto his own people and his own people did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he gave them power to become the sons of God. Power comes from God. The receiving comes from God. It's all of God. It's all of Christ. So now that we see that that's what faith is, let's look at a couple of attributes of true faith. True faith, according to our catechism, has a certain knowledge. A certain knowledge. Not a particular knowledge, as in there's a certain kind of knowledge and this other certain kind of knowledge. It's talking about a certain knowledge of certainty. That we have certainty in our knowledge. Which means holding as true that which is revealed in God's word. That's what the catechism says. True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word. So what is certain knowledge? Can we have it? Can we have certain knowledge? Jesus appears to think so. In John 17, you don't have to flip there. But in John 17, verse 3, Jesus says this. And this is eternal life. This is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. To know. To know thee. Not just know about thee. Again, I've said this before, and I'll continue to say it till I die. Christianity, God is not a person, or God is not a thing to be studied, excuse me. God is not a thing to be studied, but a person to be known, loved, and worshipped, and served. It's not merely studying theology. It's knowing God. So can we have certain knowledge? 
Can we have certainty in faith? Can we have certainty in what the Bible tells us and in our Christian life? Well, let's define that a little bit. Let's work that out a little bit. No one can have empirical certainty on basically anything. On basically anything. We're talking about empirical certainty. Certainty that can be tested and have evidence right in front of you and proved beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because especially in our modern age, our postmodern age, excuse me, it could just be a video game we're living in. You've heard that argument. That's, in, that's literally in universities. It's a simulation. Existentially, how do I know that my ego, my that, the I and the thou that I'm experiencing all around me is even real? Or is it just a perception of what I'm thinking? What is truth? So empirically, we cannot have certainty, especially in our faith. No one can prove that Jesus rose from the dead. No one can prove it empirically. There is no evidence for it. There is no evidence empirically that God exists. There is no evidence empirically that we are Christian. That's not where our certainty rests. That's not where, what faith is. It's not based on what you can prove or not, empirically. However, in light of this, or in spite of this, we are still called to have certainty in what God has revealed. Certainty in what God has revealed. Faith-based certainty. Now, that sounds like a cop-out. Well, you just believe. You just choose to believe, even though there's no evidence for it. That's not, that's not it at all. Because faith-based certainty is not merely saying, I will now start to intellectually assent and agree with this one proposition, and I'll be, go around believing that it is true. That's not what faith-based certainty is. No, faith-based certainty is certainty based on the Word of God. Because what is faith? It's not just a mere intellectual assent. It's something that's worked in us and sustained and carried on by the work of God in regeneration and sanctification. Where a person becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. Where God's, words, where God's word speaks, we ought to listen. We ought to believe. We ought to obey. That is faith. And where God's word does not speak, we should remain silent and not follow any man who adds or takes away therefrom. That also is faith. That also is faith. So certainty is something that we can and should have insofar as we can even have it. Insofar as we can even have it. We have to know what the right certainty is. It's faith-based certainty. Not empirical certainty. In 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. Because the catechism is pointing us to we should have a certain knowledge. That's what true saving faith is. Certain knowledge to the truths that are revealed of the truths which are revealed in Scripture. So those things which are revealed in the Word of God, it's saying true faith receives those things, stands upon them. So 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, the Apostle Paul says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. Unto all good works. So if it's given by inspiration of God, it's true, and we receive it. We receive it and stand upon it. That's what faith is. There's no empirical evidence that the Bible is God's word. So what changed? What is true faith then? It can't merely be being convinced that this is God's word. And even the Westminster 
Confession of Faith, our London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 1 do this. They say, yeah, even though there's a lot of really good reasons to believe that the Bible is God's word, and they list a whole bunch, in spite of all this, it, le- it rests upon the testimony of the Holy Spirit within us. And that's it. You cannot apologize, meaning use apologetics, to, the, to get someone saved. No one has ever been saved by apologetics. They've been saved only, any person ever, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Can he use apologetics? You bet. Only though, when it's in accordance with God's word. Because again, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, not by really good intellectual arguments. We have an assured confidence, the catechism goes on to say. We have an assured confidence. Not just a certain knowledge, but also an assured confidence. What is that assured confidence? I'll go to Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17, tells us what this kind of assured confidence is. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, see that same kind of language, for as many as received him. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Well, how do we know? How do we know that that is the case? What empirical evidence? Nope, we don't go that way. We don't go to empirical evidence. It says in verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. That's assured confidence. We have confidence because God gives us confidence by the Holy Spirit, bearing testimony in our heart and to us. That we have a spirit that cries out within us, Abba, Father. Can you prove that to someone else? No. And you can't even necessarily prove it to yourself because it's the spirit bearing witness with your spirit. You can increase that assurance. You can increase that certainty that you have that you are indeed Christ by attending the means of grace, by attending to the means of grace, reading, praying, church, fellowship, and conference with people, those kinds of things. But you cannot force the hand of the Spirit to now give you some sort of evidence. Pentecostals do this with the second baptism, the second baptism. And speaking in tongues. Literally have seen it. I've been, I've been in it. I've been in the Pentecostal movements. I was actually trained in Pentecostal. Even though I was, uh, I was convinced as you know, reformed soteriology and etc. I was attending a Pentecostal church. An Assemblies of God church. So they have a, minister, a ministry program. And I was like, oh, I guess I'll just get licensed here. Licensed here. This is what's in front of me. Um, and I, I started going through it. And, you know, in those classes, when we talked about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the second baptism, they literally teach you in those churches and in their ministry schools, they teach ministers how to teach other people how to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, how to pray in tongues. Because if you pray in tongues, that means you're baptized with the Spirit, the second baptism of the Spirit. There's the first, whereby you're saved, and there's the second, whereby you're kind of a a set-apart kind of Christian, an extra, super, uber-Christian. And they teach you how to pray in tongues. Literally. So you can't force the hand of the Spirit. 
There is no outward testimony of the Holy Spirit. There's an inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures say. Let them say whatever they want. Okay, you can have your outward testimony because it's outside of scripture and I'm not going to follow you in that. And I'm not going to follow you in that. And that's why when we get to the section in the Heidelberg that deals with baptism, as much as I adore the Heidelberg Catechism, as much as I respect and revere the men who wrote this catechism, who preached the gospel, who won entire nations to Christ, revivals went out from these people. When I get to that section, we will not follow them in that because they go beyond the word of God and saying that infants should be baptized. It's just as simple as that. I love those men. I learn from those men. I mean, we're in a Presbyterian church right now. We love those men and adore our brothers and sisters in Christ who do this, but they're, we're not going to follow them in it. It's beyond the scripture. It's outside the scripture. It's adding to the scripture, and we're not going to follow them in that. And that's fine. We should do that. But we cannot force the hand of the Spirit to prove that we are His, to prove that we have forgiveness of sins and everlasting righteousness and salvation. How do you know that you have everlasting righteousness and salvation? Well, the Catechism does point us to how you can know that. That's number one, obviously, first and foremost, by the inward testimony, but also because the Scriptures say it. If the Bible says it, there it is. Those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. People come to me and say, I don't know if I'm saved. And I say, then believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And thou shalt be saved. It's as simple as that. People want a more complex answer. And I want one too sometimes. That's not, that's not necessarily intellectually satisfying. That we'll just believe upon Jesus and you'll be saved. Yeah, but what, what else do I do? That's it. That's it. I'm sorry, I don't have anything else for you. Because I'm not going to go beyond Scripture. We know that salvation is all of God's free grace on account of Christ's merits alone and through faith alone. How? Because that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. Third and last point. What must we believe to be saved? Question 22. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? Answer. All things promised to us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. And I'm not going to read the Apostles' Creed again. We read it, and they're going to break it down for a whole bunch of Lord's Days. What is necessary for a Christian to believe? All things promised to us in the gospel. And this addition here of, of our Catholic, undoubted faith, obviously not Roman Catholic, Catholic Universal, and the reason they then go to the Apostles' Creed is not because they're boiling down Christianity. They then use these as a, again, starting point to launch off of and expand upon. But these are the very basics. These are the very basics. And there's, there's that whole mere Christianity movement. And they kind of abuse uh, C.S. Lewis's whole book on that. But the mere Christianity movement is just basically boiling down. What, what, can, what is the least amount that's important that we can derive from the scriptures that we can agree on and still be like, okay, we're all cool here. We're all saved. What is, what is the bare minimum? And that bare minimum keeps getting lower and lower and less and less and less until there's nothing left of Christianity because, well, I believe Jesus was incarnate, but I mean it's more of a spiritual incarnation. Does that count? So I can affirm the apostles. I'm not, this is real stuff. This is real stuff. Well, it was, he was resurrected, uh, what, did, what did Karl Barth say again? Sorry, this is a really Barthian sermon. Karl Barth, when interviewed by Time Magazine, 
uh, he was on the cover of Time Magazine, did a whole article on him in the 60s. They asked him, so do you believe in an empty tomb? Because that was one of the you know, big things. Like, what, what parts of the Bible do you accept or reject? <clears throat> he said, we do not believe in an empty tomb, but in a risen Christ. And you're like, oh, that sounds really, you know, that sounds really good. That's, you know, that's a cool way of putting it. What does that mean? Well, you look at how the, these guys flesh us out and people that followed him. What does that mean? It means that Jesus' body could still have been in the grave. It's not the empty tomb we proclaim. We proclaim a risen Christ. And he rose in the hearts of his people. Rudolf Bultmann, another contemporary of him. That the, the kerygma of the church, the preaching of the church is where the message of Christianity is. And where it goes forth. And it raises a, an entire movement. And Jesus lives on as a raised savior. As a raised Christ in the hearts and preaching of the church where it goes that's not what well that's not why the divines here are using the apostles creed they're using it as a springboard and that's what we should do as a confessional church is use our confession our catechisms these other great reformed documents as springboards as summations of our faith what we find contain the scriptures and when they deviate so should we i i fully i have a full subscription to the 69 london baptist confession of faith i agree with every word in it for now, I mean, if I ever came across something I re- realized was wrong, I would leave it. Because it is not my final authority, the Holy Word of God is my final authority. I have received that as my final authority, not any confession or catechism. But it does show us the importance of using creeds and confessions and catechisms. They're helpful. They're helpful guides. We should not neglect them. All the promises of the gospel are what is necessary to be believed if we are to be saved. Catechism, creeds, use them. Study theology, study church history, so that we do not repeat the same mistakes. I just had a conversation with a friend the other night. A couple of us were sitting down talking, and this is not unique to him. A lot of people have this kind of mentality and this mindset. Is well, I don't need theology. I don't need church history. I don't need to know about those things because I'm just going to go with the Bible. I'm going to have an extreme biblicism, and that's it. That's not what we want either, because we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. And we don't want to think that the Holy Spirit is now speaking to us for the first time ever. No one else has gotten it right until us. I figured it out because all I did was sit under a tree with Jesus and my Bible, and he taught me. And he taught me, and that was it. And, and a lot of these people will point to First John, you need not that any man should teach you. For the unction given to you by the Father will teach you. That's not what that's referring to at all. It's not what that's referring to at all. It's talking about the fact that you'll know that Jesus Christ is not only just the the Christ figure, but also Jesus of Nazareth. That's what the book of 1 John's about. That you'll know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, and that he is the Son of God, and we are saved by and through him. You'll know that by the unction which is given to you. No man can teach you that, and these other men that are teaching otherwise are to be rejected. They went out from us because they're not of us. That's 1 John's point. That's, that's the Apostle John's point in 1 John. It's not that, well, now I don't need to read a book or study the past or study theology. A lot of these people also attend churches, so I'm always confused by that. Then why do you go to a sermon? Why do you hear a sermon? If you need not that any man teach you, then why are you at church? I fear that sometimes they've been like, you're right, and just go home, but I don't know. That's not the answer either. We should use the past. We don't need to have an extreme biblicism. Now, it is important to remember, and I think this is the point that our divines are trying to drive home, 
is that whoever rejects these key tenets of Christianity laid out in the Apostles' Creed cuts himself off from salvation. He cuts himself off from Christ. And thus, he is without comfort in both life and in death. He has no hope. He has no comfort. He has nowhere to look. So it is a, it is a serious issue. And this is why, again, polemics is important in preaching at times. We need to point out what is wrong so that we can point to what is right. If you only point at what's wrong, well, yeah, you're not doing anything. We need to do both at times. And that's why with ending on the Apostles' Creed, there's, there's something we can rally around here. There's something we can expand upon and see what the scriptures say about each of these things. And that's what the divines are going to do. And those who deny that and have a downgrade on these things and try to, let's narrow it down more and more, are in the wrong. Are in the wrong. And we can know that. And we can call that out if we have, if we're going to have any hope of it getting better. If we're going to have any hope of seeing revival, we must call out that which is wicked and wrong. And so with that, we can ask, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me, that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before thee and ask that we would love thee and serve thee, knowing the guilt that is ours in Adam and the grace that thou hast given us in Christ and live unto thee in gratitude by the power of thy Holy Spirit. Apply this word to our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John Mosby, please come forward for the singing of the doxology.